0: You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com.
1: The text for this morning's sermon is Acts 20, verses 1 through 12. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater of Berea, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the Days of Unleavened Bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window, sank in a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. This is the word of the Lord.
0: You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we... Come to this time of preaching this morning. I pray that you would give us a humble spirit to hear from you. Uh, We need to hear from you this morning. We need to be convicted by the word. Uh, We need to be changed by the word. Individually and corporately, we want to be people and a people that are shaped and formed by your living and powerful Word. This is why each week when we come together, the bulk of our time is given to opening the Word of God and hearing from you. We are your people, purchased by the blood of your Son, so, Holy Spirit, would you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for us this morning? We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Over the last 18 years of full-time ministry, there, there are two kinds, I've, I've learned this, there are two kinds of letters that one receives, that I've received, that are and will forever be etched in my memory. The first is the dreaded anonymous letter from a disgruntled or a group of disgruntled church members. And the second is a personal note from an individual member. Now, thankfully, I've received only one of the anonymous letters, and that wasn't here at Redeemer. But but here's the difference between the two letters. The anonymous letter outlining all the things a pastor is doing wrong is meant only to tear down, to dishearten and demoralize. There is nothing constructive about a letter like this at all. But the personal note dropped in the mail, handwritten by a member who's faithfully praying and engaged. Friends, there are few things more encouraging to a pastor than a personal letter simply meant to encourage. In fact, I I have one with me. I received this about a year ago. Here's how the letter opens. Dear Pastor Redberg, Yesterday I listened to your message of March 31st as I was sick at home. It called us to pray for wisdom for the elders of how to lead the congregation in becoming more and more like the early church in that we are sharing Christ with people in our life. It encouraged me to continue to pray biblical prayers for our people as I read the scriptures each morning. This is how it ends. We are thankful for you In your heart to equip God's people to do the work of the ministry, we praise God from whom all blessings flow. Nothing fancy, just a church member with a heart to encourage. Brothers and sisters, one of the marks of a healthy walk with Jesus is that you have a heart to encourage. You are quick to speak words that build others up. When you encourage another believer, you are reflecting the heart of God. Over the next two weeks, as we continue our study through Acts, we're going to see these two little snapshots. I'm calling them Portraits. This first is a portrait of encouragement, and the second is a portrait of a pastor. And yet, you'll see a theme, as I'll mention. The theme will work its way through the whole chapter. When you come to texts like this, in a book like Acts, there the events that we read about are fairly easy to understand. So, sometimes it's helpful for us to pull out themes that we find and to meditate On those themes. This morning, I want you to see in verses 1 through 12 a portrait of encouragement. We'll see something of how God encourages his people and how the primary context for this encouragement is the body of Christ. In other words, God uses his church to encourage his church. In fact, this is pretty clearly the theme of of all of chapter 20. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Now, skip down to verse 12. We'll get to this, but... After God unexpectedly works in power, the text says the people were, what, not a little comforted. The word translated as comforted is a form of the same word translated as encouraging and encouragement in verses 1 and 2. Friends, in addition to this, as we look carefully at Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders next week, it will It will be like we've been invited into a very personal meeting where the Apostle Paul is is bearing his soul and seeking to encourage a group of brothers that he cares very deeply about. So from beginning to end, Acts chapter 20 is a beautiful portrait of godly encouragement. Now, back to the beginning of this chapter. I first want you to notice that God encourages his people through relationships. God encourages his people through relationships. Verses 1 and 2 again. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Verse 1 draws our attention back to the scene that concluded chapter 19. Do you remember worshipers of Artemis have been whipped into an angry rage by a man named Demetrius, an idol maker who was losing money because Jesus was capturing the hearts of idol worshipers and transforming them by his grace? The scene that unfolds is pretty frightening. Tens of thousands of people fill an amphitheater, and for hours they scream. Most of them don't even know what they're screaming about. The text tells us that two of Paul's companions are in great danger. It seems pretty clear that the crowd wants them to suffer. But then Luke records how God uses a city clerk to diffuse the situation. In verse 41, simply says, he then dismissed the assembly. Now, friends, it seems reasonable, it seems reasonable to me to think that this whole event would have been terrifying. It would have been terrifying for followers of Jesus, those who had heard Paul preach Christ. They had turned to Christ in repentance and faith, rejecting the worship of gods like Artemis. Don't you think that many new believers? having either witnessed this firsthand or heard about it, don't you think they would have been battling some measure of fear and anxiety? And of course, this is only one incident. The book of Acts has been full of true accounts of violent opposition to the gospel. So these stories have spread. Many people have witnessed these. They're coming fresh off of this massive crowd that's angry and violent toward the gospel. But you see, God had given Paul and these people a unique relationship. A relationship that we'll look at far more closely next week. And so what's what's happening here? Well, now in their time of need, someone they loved, Paul, and trusted Paul, well, he was there for them. Brothers and sisters, this is what a shepherd of God's people should do. This is what a shepherd of God's people should do because it reflects the heart of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. A shepherd should be known by his people, and a shepherd should know his people. This is the soil out of which godly encouragement will grow. You see, if the body of Christ is not marked by meaningful relationships between leaders and members and between members and other members, if we don't have relationships with each other, then our ability to encourage each other when we need it most, well, it will be terribly hindered. Paul knew the people and the people knew Paul and they trusted and loved each other. So Paul, who had much to do and many places to go, well, he was willing to take the time to encourage them. And they were willing to take the time to listen and to be encouraged. The kind of encouragement we encounter here is a result of meaningful relationships. But isn't this what we're all called to When God saved each of us and brought us into union with Christ, he also brought us into union with the people of Christ. We can't disconnect our new identity in Christ from our new community in Christ. It's a package deal. Friends, God's gift of Christ brings with it the gift of his people as well. Now, I know for some of you, This has not been your experience. Church leaders and church members. They have not seemed like a gift to you. But instead, they have been a source of pain and confusion. Well, friend, if that's you, I'm so sorry that that's been your experience. And I pray that the greatest comforter and encourager, the Holy Spirit, will give you peace And bring into your life a new and fresh experience of God's kindness through trustworthy church leaders and honest and gracious church members. I pray the church will become a place of encouragement and not pain. And notice verses 3 through 6. Mike read those for us earlier and remarkably pronounced everything correctly. (laughs) What Luke records here, it further underscores the importance and the role of meaningful relationships within the body of Christ. And it really points us to Paul's heart for discipleship, which I think should be a challenge to all of us. As we've worked our way through the book of Acts, have you noticed, have you noticed that Paul has almost always been traveling with someone else? On his first journey, he was accompanied by Barnabas and John Mark. On his second journey, Silas, Timothy, and Luke traveled with him at different times. Now on his third journey, Luke supplies us with a list of men that were traveling with Paul. Brothers and sisters, you've, you've heard it before and you will hear it many times again. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you should be helping someone else follow Jesus. For Paul, as an apostle and church planter, this meant Taking others with him as he traveled. Right? He's thinking, how can I invest in other people? Well, I'm traveling around. Let's let's take people with me. Let's give them firsthand experience. So they can see what God's doing. They can see how the gospel is transforming people. Come on. Come with me. It's not the same for all of us. Right? For parents here, how does how does this challenge you, well you should be actively and intentionally engaged in leading your children to follow Jesus. If you're an older Christian, find a younger Christian to invest in. I've never met a younger Christian in a church that was unwilling to be invested in by an older believer. If you're single, Pray that God will provide you with another brother or sister to encourage. Every member of this church should be invested in another member of this church. And this investment doesn't have to be formal. It could take on a hundred different forms. Friends, this is one of the ways in which the church has strayed so far from what we find in Scripture. Where the church is has largely become a spectator sport. We find a church that gives us what we want. We show up. We sit. We receive those things that we want, and then we walk out. We, we never have to invest in other people in any meaningful way. And when the church stops offering us, offering us what we want, we just find somewhere new to go. This is, this is not what we find in Scripture. This is not the picture that we find. We find... Believers moving toward other believers to engage in meaningful relationships. And not all of the relationships go well. Right? We've seen that in our study through Acts. What's so interesting about all seven of the names listed in our text is that they're all connected to places where churches have already been planted. Did you notice that? Berea, Thessalonica, Philippi, Derby, Lystra, and Ephesus. John Stott wonderfully points out that each of these men listed. Uh, he says this, quote, They were first the fruit of the mission, but now they have become agents of the mission. In some sense, brothers and sisters, isn't this the point of discipleship? And isn't this what we're trying to accomplish as a church? take the fruit of the gospel, and move them toward becoming agents of the mission. Discipleship moves someone from simply believing the gospel to declaring the gospel. Discipleship always has mission in view. The first six verses of Acts 20 emphasize the importance and gift of relationships Within the body of Christ. Meaningful relationships will encourage us when we are weak. And they will push us toward maturity in our faith. Second, I want you to see how God encourages his people through weekly worship gatherings. So, God encourages his people through relationships. And now God encourages his people through weekly worship gatherings. Look with me at verse 7. on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day and he prolonged his speech until midnight I want to make a note of two things here and we want to remember that the the book of Acts is not prescriptive for us but it's descriptive so These are kind of extended meditations, points of challenge for us to think about. First, the text says that as Paul arrived in Troas and he gathered with believers on the first day of the week, and there's a lot of debate about exactly what the text means when it refers to the first day of the week, If the Jewish method of reckoning a day is being used, this would mean Saturday night. But if the Roman method is being used, it would refer to Sunday night. Most commentators agree this is a reference to Sunday rather than Saturday. In fact, F.F. Bruce says this is the earliest unambiguous evidence that we have for the church practice of gathering together for worship on Sunday. Friends, the practice of the early church and the consistent practice of followers of Jesus ever since has been to meet together on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. It is the glorious continuation of what Luke recorded in Luke 24 at verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. You see, Paul knew that as he traveled, when he arrived in an area where there were already Christians, he could just join in on the first day of the week as brothers and sisters in Christ gathered to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. I think this is is an amazing picture if you think about it, what has developed in this very early stage of the church already. So I I want to say this clearly, friends. There, There is something very special and significant about the weekly gathering of believers on the first day of the week. The New Testament never presents the Sunday gathering in a legalistic way. But it presents it as something that should be very natural to us. It should naturally be a priority for every Christian. In fact, this is what the author of Hebrews has in view when he writes, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, But encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Meeting together with other believers. Especially those you have covenanted with. Well it's good for you. It's good for you. God intends for it to be a means of building you up in your faith. But also. He intends for it to be a means of using you to build up others. So sometimes we fall into the trap and say, I'm, I'm not getting anything out of this. Okay, well, what are you giving to others? Friends, weekly corporate worship is an opportunity for all of us to gather together and be reminded that Jesus is not dead, that he is the victorious Christ. And this is meant to shape the way we think and the way we live. This is, Gathering is God's idea, and it's meant to encourage and equip each of us. This is why Kent Hughes once said to to Christians who don't prioritize the body of Christ and its regular gatherings, Hughes warned that your life, your life will be tragically diminished. By non participation in the body of Christ. I think Hughes is simply saying what Scripture presents to us. Paul met for worship with fellow believers on the first day of the week. But I also want you to see their activity. Verse 7, again, you could just look at it. They broke bread and then Paul spoke. When the text says that they broke bread, it means that they had a meal together that would have included a time of communion as well. This is one of those biblical texts that as as I read many different theologians and commentators, my heart just became more and more encouraged by what I read, especially as it applies to us, as I began applying it to my own, faith family here at Redeemer. <clears throat> in particular, I, I love how Tony Marita spends considerable time in his commentary on, A- on Acts examining the importance and role of the Lord's table. Merida explains three aspects of the Lord's table, the privilege, the pattern, and the power. And, and I just want to share something with you that he said when he was talking about the privilege of the Lord's table. The privilege of the Lord's table is the invitation to remember the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, think about this particular group of believers in Troas. They couldn't have been Christians very long. They were almost certainly new believers, and they were almost certainly impacted in some way by Paul's ministry. And so now, as Paul is traveling, he gets to participate with these new brothers and sisters in a joyous time of communion. How thrilling this must have been for him. Merida draws attention to the similarity between this unique time of worship for Paul and something missionary John G. Patton experienced many difficult years after he took the gospel to the unreached cannibals of the New Hebrides Islands. Patton wrote about the first time he served communion to those who had been radically transformed by Jesus. And I want you to listen to Patton's words, because I think in his words, we perhaps will remember something we've forgotten about the table. Patton said this, for years we had toiled and prayed and taught for this. At the moment when I put the bread and wine into those dark hands once stained with the blood of cannibalism but now stretched out to receive and partake the emblems and seals of the Redeemer's love I had a foretaste of the joy of glory that well nigh broke my heart into pieces I shall never taste a deeper bliss Till I gaze on the glorified face of Jesus himself. Brothers and sisters, do we understand the full weight and beauty of the Lord's table? This is no mere ritual, but it ought to be absolutely central to our life together as recipients of the new covenant. In reality, both baptism and the Lord's Supper define us. They should shape our life together. Listen to theologian Brian Vickers. He writes, The invitation to the supper is an invitation to remember the gospel promised by the prophets, fulfilled in Christ, and proclaimed by the apostles. The thirsty, hungry, and tired are welcome. For God makes them worthy by the blood of Jesus Christ. They can come through faith Grasping promises kept and promises awaiting fulfillment. You see, this is why every indication we have and every historical record we have leads us to the conclusion that the early church observed the Lord's table every time they gathered for corporate worship on the first day of the week. And, friends, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they? The Lord's table has been given to believers by God to encourage us, to build us up and to strengthen our faith. It calls to mind the death of Jesus as we hold in our hands the visible signs of the bread and the cup. It reminds us that our greatest help comes from outside ourselves. It proclaims the good news of the gospel that God is for us. The table is a sign of the salvation God brings in Christ. The table is not merely a history lesson. It is a tangible sign that God loves sinners and purchased them by the blood of his Son. Again, brothers and sisters, when we consider the full weight and beauty of the Lord's table... It's no wonder the early church practiced it each and every week as they gathered. Now, the text does mention something else. They broke bread and Paul taught. Many have described a prescription for corporate worship this way. When we gather, we should read the Bible, preach the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, and see the Bible. The Bible. I've shared this with you before, but what is meant by that phrase, see the Bible? Well, it's this. It was St. Augustine who said that baptism and the Lord's Supper were visible words. The gospel is declared through visible and dramatic symbols. We see the gospel displayed when a redeemed sinner eats the bread and drinks the cup. We see the gospel displayed when a redeemed sinner is plunged beneath the water's In baptism, and then raised to walk in the newness of life. Isn't it interesting how vastly different our setting is from that which we read about in Acts 20? And yet, there should also be great similarities. And no, I'm not talking about the similarity of someone falling asleep during preaching. Friends, the prescription for gospel ministry is largely the same, regardless of the time or the place. God has always encouraged his church by means of his word. In our text, this encouragement comes through both the Lord's table and Paul's teaching, but in everything, the word is central. Now, notice how this particular scene unfolds, and this is where we find our our third And final point, God encourages His people through relationships, through corporate worship, and sometimes He encourages His people through miraculous intervention. God encourages His people through miraculous intervention. Look again at verse 7, and we'll read down through verse 9. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. A boy named Eutychus had come to hear the Apostle Paul teach. Eutychus is probably somewhere between 10 and 14 years old. And he, like most people in attendance, probably worked all day. Paul had much to say to the believers gathered, and it was getting late, and it was warm, and Eutychus was tired. He was so tired that he finally gave in to a deep sleep. And we find out that falling into a deep sleep while sitting in a third-story window is not a good idea. There is a tragic fall, and Eutychus lays dead on the ground. Friends, this was a real worship gathering with real people, and Eutychus really and very tragically fell to his death. But look what happens next, verse 10. But Paul went down and bent over him, taking him in his arms, said, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Listen now, David Peterson describes what transpires in verse 10. He says that, quote, Paul's prophetic role in the situation was to detect life where others saw only death. He saw death because Eutychus was dead, and yet, Paul sensed, perhaps, that God was going to do something miraculous. So make no mistake, Eutychus was really dead, but when Paul knelt down and wrapped his arms around the lifeless body of Eutychus, God made him alive. God took a tragic accident and encouraged his people by reminding them that he alone has power over death. So think about this. You've gathered for worship at the end of a long day. The time of teaching has been particularly long. You've witnessed a tragic accident followed by a glorious miracle. Now look at verse 11. When Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. The people gathered for worship. The people gathered for worship went from seeing a young man raised from the dead to celebrating Jesus being raised from the dead. I'm guessing this was a fairly memorable time of communion. And yet, friends, there's something very similar that happens for us when we come to the table together, when we come and we worship together. We are a collection of people who were spiritually dead, who were brought to life by the power of Christ, and now we come to celebrate the risen Christ in all of his power. How encouraging is that the the message this morning is, is not intended to be an argument that the church is perfect or that the church always fulfills the function that God created it to do, but that the church, as imperfect as it is, is God's idea. God loves his people, and he has provided for us a multitude of means to encourage us in our faith. And yet, what would the devil love to do? Oh, he would love to separate us from all these means of encouragement by pulling us away from what Scripture paints the church to be, by pulling us away from this portrait we have all throughout the book of Acts of the early church, And then we will inevitably fall into this pattern where, where the church will become defined, but what we want, what we desire, what we long for, what we think we need. In doing that, friends, you're, you're taking what God has designed to be a means of encouragement. And in a sense, you're saying, I know what I need more than God knows what I need. So let this be both an encouragement and a warning. Think clearly and think biblically about what the church is and what it's supposed to be. And then let this text push you. Push you to say, how can I, how can I press into this? How can I seek encouragement and give encouragement? How can I reorient my thinking to really value and understand the full weight and beauty of the Lord's table of baptism? How can I come ready to hear the word so that I'm easily edified, easily encouraged by the word when it's opened up and taught? And how can I pray with confidence and expectation that that God is a good God seeking to encourage his people by working in unexpected ways? So I hope this text has challenged you to recognize and participate, to recognize and participate in developing a greater culture of encouragement here at Redeemer. And I hope that God's relentless encouragement of you through relationships, through weekly worship, through the Lord's table, through preaching, through sovereign displays of His power, I hope, I hope that you will be motivated to encourage others as God encourages you. Let's pray.